What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Before you get to the show, make sure you check out theringer.com for our extensive NFL coverage leading up to the Super Bowl. We also just published our 2019 NFL Draft Guide, where you can find all things draft-related leading up to the first round on April 25th. It includes prospect rankings, scouting reports, mock drafts, and much more. We'll be updating it regularly with new analysis that takes all the latest developments into account. Once again, you can check that out on theringer.com. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Chris Ryan. I'm going to be joined by Jason Concepcion in just a second. Oh, there he is. We're the co-hosts of The Flat Circle, a true detective after show that you can watch on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. But you can also listen to the podcast version of the show right here, right now. What's up? Welcome to The Flat Circle. It's a true detective after show. Chris Ryan, Jason Concepcion, we've just watched episode four of season three of True Detective. Oh yeah, we did. Uh, for everybody sitting watching us at home, yes, I am wearing Scoop McNary 1990. <laughs> it's a it's a custom piece. It's a really like you have to get sober in Arkansas in 1990 to actually cop this. Cleaned sweater. up and you're looking great. Thank you, man. Yeah. I'm actually growing a playoff beard because I'm not shaving until we figure this whole thing out. Let's start the essential questions yes. that we ask every week: who, what, when, where, why. And we're going to start with what. This was a an episode laden with biblical imagery. Okay? Oh, yeah. Biblical references, the priest's mass, Patty's needle, needlepoint Bible quote. We're going to yep. get to all these people. Roland and Wayne talking about their Catholic and Baptist upbringings. It's also classic David Milch. Oh, there's David, David Milch all over this. Weighed in uh, on the script writing process here. Yeah. He he gets a co-writing credit with Nick Pizzolatto. Uh, in exchange, he reportedly worked a little bit, and Pizzolatto worked a little bit on the Deadwood mm-hmm. movie that that should be coming out, uh, hopefully imminently, because we can't wait for that. But these were dense, dialogue-heavy scenes that demand repeat viewing to fully unpack, which is classic Milch. So you think about Deadwood, you think about Luck, you think about yeah. John from Cincinnati. These are like basically like cones that you have yes. to like kind of unpack all of this stuff. And you can really see that in the Wayne and Amelia dinner scene. Oh shit! Which goes way past like when what like conventional dialogue scenes do. You know what I mean? Like, and they play so many different roles. Right. Power is exchanged over the course of the conversation. They're speaking past each other on different levels of conversation. Uh, Amelia goes from like the ingenue to the investigator yeah. to uh, she's offended that yeah. she's coming on to him. But she, it's it's a very complicated scene. We'll get to that. This was an episode that brought the underlying racial tension oh, yeah. in this Arkansas community to the foreground as well. So you got Hayes and West interrogating a one-eyed black man named Mr. Uh, Sam, Sam Whitehead. Whitehead. Sam Whitehead, who superficially matches the description of uh, the mysterious scarred black man driving around in this brown sedan that we've learned about that seems to be, there's a lot of debate online about whether this is a red herring or this is the mm-hmm. key to the entire case. But these, this brown sedan was seen in the same vicinity as Will and Julie multiple times and was seen leaving town on the day of Will and Julie's disappearance. It becomes quickly evident, though, that Whitehead has nothing to do with this Purcell case. At least that's my read on it. Yeah. We might debate this later. But the situation almost gets out of hand, and it's interesting because it kind of echoes episode four of season one, where it's the famous stash house scene. Yeah. Where Who the neighborhood, there? it just gets goes completely upside down. The neighborhood turns on, I mean, they don't know that they're, they're not actually cops for the most part. Right. They're white power bikers, except for McConaughey's character. But it's an interesting parallel to that season and the way in which these police investigations can quickly go sideways. In 1980, Hayes and West are trying to find out what they don't know. 
what kind of life did Will and Julie Purcell live outside right. of the purview of their parents or the school teachers or their priests or whoever? What was going on in those woods? Who was out in the woods with them? We're still trying to find questions, the answers to these questions. They arrive at an interesting conclusion, though, that Will died trying to protect Julie. That is extremely interesting, it, and it raises more questions as to why Julie would be the target of this and then why she would still be alive in 1990. Right. And so did Will, was Will, did Will fight against this person or people? Was Will the person, you know, if Will wasn't targeted, how yeah. did Will know this person? They question a priest, Hayes and West question a priest, trying to get to the bottom of what kind of kids Will and Julie were. And this guy has read on them that they were very sweet yeah. and that they cared for each other. So that does speak to that. He does say that Julie was very excited to see an aunt that we've never heard of. And that... That she didn't have. And that she did not have. So who is this person and where was she going? Is, are these the people that ended up taking her somewhere? Right. And now the, the, the mysterious black man in a brown sedan is supposedly joined at various points by a white woman. Could this white woman be the aunt? We don't know. Could it be Patty Favor, who is the maker of the chaff dolls, mm. who sold those dolls to this guy in the sedan? She says that she sold about 10 of these dolls to a black man. Uh, we, but she doesn't know who. And in that scene, we also get some overtones of, of the kind of uh, racial divisions that are yes. affecting this Arkansas community and the way in which it's, it's slowly evolving. We talked about Wayne and Amelia's first date briefly. It's worth noting, though, that her hair is in exactly the same style as it is when she appears to Wayne in his vision at the end of episode three. Amelia is an absolute enigma. One thing to, to note, and we're going to talk about this later, is every time Wayne gets close to getting Amelia to admit something or he's questioning her directly about her life, she manages to wriggle out of it in really interesting ways. We'll talk about that later. As the case grinds on in 1980, the community around the crime is tearing itself apart. Lucy Purcell is drinking herself numb and in a conversation with Amelia, unintentionally or intentionally, dun, dun, dun. she quotes the ransom note sent to the family specifically children should laugh, while talking about her immense guilt over the fate of her children. Hayes and West are on the verge of pinning the crime on these, these three teenagers that we met in episode one, the Black Sabbath kids, when a group of men who suspect Brett Woodard, the trash man, as, as the culprit show up at his house, and we find out that Jason and I are going to be on the right side of history with what was in the duffel bag. I'm looking at our researcher, Jordan Liggins, who was on team It's a Body, or perhaps team Big Buck Hunter. A, a small deer. Uh, in 1990, Hayes and West are reunited. There's a clear hierarchy at work, though, with oh, yeah. West acting as Hayes' benefactor. And he's moved up the chain. He's met Bill Clinton. Yeah. He's putting his rep on the line for his old partner. And we don't know why he feels this debt yet, why he feels he owes him. Perhaps he's just a good Baptist. We see his benevolence at work with Tom Purcell, at least what we assume to be benevolence, as he saves him and kind of starts his, his you know, road towards sobriety. Mm -hmm. In 2015... It starts out, Wayne's having one of his better days. He's working the case. He's meeting with Eliza. He finds out that Dan O'Brien, who is Lucy's cousin, cousin. cousin. Deepest apologies to the O'Brien family for Sorry confusing about that. that. I know I said that he was uh, Lucy's brother. Shouts to uh, Dan's bones. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Wayne's good day ends in a terrible place, though. Yeah. The worst possible place with his ghosts. He's visited in his office as he's trying to sort through, stream of consciousness-wise, he's trying to sort through this case. And he is visited by a couple dozen NVA soldiers, Northern Vietnamese soldiers, that he, in all likelihood, killed in the Vietnam War. And he is also 
visited by a mysterious man in a suit. A white yeah. man in a suit. Who's this guy? Who he feels compelled to apologize to in his office. He says, I'm sorry. Brett Woodard to, also there. Yeah, and then he goes to his window and he looks out the window and he sees that a car is idling outside of his house. Or does he? We don't know yeah. what in 2015, what Wayne is really seeing or what he's not seeing. So that wraps up what? That's what happened in this episode. Let's talk about who. Yeah, let's then. do that. Who, who is a question that really dominated this week's episode? Um, let's just go down the list. Lucy Purcell. Yeah. Uh, her comment to Amelia that children should laugh feels like one of the more significant clues that we've had in the series thus far. Yeah. Should note that when Amelia arrives at the house, the door's closed, she can hear Lucy inside talking loudly on the phone. Yeah, and this is one of those things with in True Detective, I, I feel like especially this season. Yeah. Is that like it just doesn't feel like there are any wasted details. Things are either as explicitly a misdirection yeah. or explicitly a direction, but there's not a lot of like, oh, this is just for color. This yeah. is just for texture. So she, why is she on the phone? Who's she talking to? Now the first thing that she says is kind of hard to hear, but it sounds like no call. Quick in a questioning, very aggressive questioning manner, then who the fuck do you think you're talking to, motherfucker? Hello? And then hang up. Mm-hmm. Is this a prank call or is this something more substantial? Right. Uh, that's the question. Amelia comes in. She's there ostensibly to deliver uh, Will and Julie's stuff from school. Although I feel like that's just something you could give to Wayne to deliver. Uh-huh. You could just be like, hey, I have this stuff. I'm going to go through an official channel. She's, All contact with the family yes. should be good. It, it, feels like, it she feels like she's inserting herself a little bit. She's absolutely there. As her character, the investigator, yes. which she has in her mind, right. in order to try and uh, glean details of what's going on. And she does it, you know, so they, they have this conversation that, you know, Lucy's been hitting the box wine a little bit during the pretty, day. Pretty hard. Yeah. Extremely hard. She's wobbling, and they're having this back and forth. And then, like, she's talking about basically, like, she wanted to give her kids, like, a better life. Better she life. wanted to give her kids a happy life. And she says, Children should laugh. Now, there was some divided opinion when we saw this. I mean, I don't know what it's divided, but we all, everybody who works on the Flat Circle, were like, oh! Yeah. And I still don't know what we mean by that. Like, you know what I mean? Because it could be any number of different interpretations of that. Well, let's break it down. The first and most obvious interpretation, she wrote the letter. Right. Right? Yes. She wrote the letter. That's something she thinks and says, and therefore put it in the letter, which... The gist of the letter is essentially, don't look for these kids. Right, that they're happier. Which would it, which don't, would... Don't, don't look for, for Julie. Yeah. Right. So right. the implication is, she knows that Julie is in a better place alive and just stop looking for her because she's happy now. Possibility two. Somebody else wrote the letter, but understands that this is, that this line would be directed directly at Lucy. Understands this is something she thinks, whether she said it in these terms Maybe or not. Maybe it's something that is in her family is like, said. Right. Like, you know, it's like in, in her family and obviously we... In other words, they've heard her or know that she has expressed this concern that the children aren't happy and that it's her fault and is saying directly to her, the children should laugh. They're happier now. Don't look. Either way, it suggests a relationship between Lucy and the note writer yeah. that is more than what we know. Yeah. If she's saying it and she's unintentionally quoting it... Right. That's a huge Freudian slip-up where that was part of her life growing up. Right. And she has now revealed that a connection to that. If she's just quoting the ransom letter of her own daughter yeah. as a kind of 
in passing description of the situation. Why did she internalize that? That's twisted. And yeah, the way like, that they shoot that scene, you, I think you were pointing out. It, it zooms, you get, a, you get a really tight shot of her face when she says that line, so you can't miss it. It's important for a reason. We just don't know what that reason is yet. Right, and we know that you know, she's talking about, God forgive me, I feel yeah. so guilty. I've got Amelia's the soul of a whore. To, I've got the soul of a whore, classic Milch line right there. <laughs> yeah. And they're trying to get, like Amelia's trying to say like, well, it's interesting. It's like Amelia is asking for Lucy's confession in the same way the priest is asking for yes. the confession, where it's like, I want to unburden you with for whatever is bothering you. Yeah. You can tell me, you can tell Wayne, and she's like, get out of my house. That's what that's what snaps right. it. Because she really just is looking for someone to open up to. And right. when she realizes that this might be part of a case, she immediately shuts down. So obviously it's important uh, what it exactly means, we don't know yet. Then there's Woodard. Do we think he's the convict? Mm-hmm. Certainly he's about to go on some kind of rampage here. I'm personally leaning hard on that he is the convict. It makes sense that Larson would see this guy who we would we're assuming Woodard dies in this, right? So Here's a guy seen in the area, has no family, is an outcast in the town, was seen talking to kids after being warned off to, to, about Even talking if he to was kids. Just doing that to like, to actually like basically like egg on the people who might be watching, right? Because he seems to like be very ready. That was for that oh, that was absolutely an that ambush. Was staged, that yeah. was his ambush. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think that Larson would see this guy and go, oh, here's my easy, here's my easy out. This yeah. is the guy. The question then becomes. Who, on his behalf, is trying to have the conviction overturned if he's dead? Mm -hmm. So who would that person be? Then uh, there's the priest. Admits talking to Will. Admits taking Will's confirmation. Obviously knows the kids. The confirmation picture, yeah, yeah. Uh, Although he is open with every question they ask. Says, yes, I took the picture. I guess he must have blinked. That's why his eyes are closed. Allows Wayne and Roland free hands to talk to the churchgoers. Directs them to Patty. Uh, Yeah, directs them to Patty. Says, oh, uh... Julie seemed very excited about going to see an aunt, which we talked about. We don't know who that person is. Roland notably doesn't like him, but also Roland is out there uh, chasing ass, as he says. Uh, <laughs> then, we have, right. then we have uh, Patty Favor, the doll lady who the priest put him onto. Now, Patty confirms that the dolls are hers. Uh-huh. She says that she hasn't sold them personally since October, right before Halloween when uh, ostensibly Julie could have got a hold of them. Says that she sold 10 at the town fair, mm-hmm. to a black man with a dead eye. What can you tell me about him? Or anything else? Handsome, not handsome, black. Right. That's it. Right. With a dead eye. And that she assumes this person is from uh, Davis Junction, which is the, bla- the segregated black neighborhood in the area. And then there's that really interesting shot where her and Wayne just kind of stare at each other right. for a moment. Raising the possibility yet again that this is a cover story that is being put out there. I personally think it's some kind of cover story just because it's like black guy with a dead eye, you can tell me nothing else about this I know. guy. I'm just finding it hard to believe as we go forward that there's just multiple people who have these experiences with a mystery brown sedan that's nicer than most cars in the area, with a black man with one eye, and a black man with a dead eye and a white woman. And like there's just that's just not something anybody has been like able to be like, yeah, it was it was Brad and Julia. You know that, what I mean? Like that was like in a everybody town, knows those people. In a town this size, segregated like this, where there's like a where they have the fall fair, and no one else, there aren't like a dozen people who are like, I saw this guy. It just seems it, it seems a stretch to me. Next, Amelia on the Who list. Let's talk about Amelia. What is going on with her? Seriously. Um, <laughs> Seriously. So she spoke earlier in the season about. 
the way she enjoyed playing characters. She mm -hmm. loved going into different situations and playing different people. Is she playing one in 1980 and perhaps She's playing like five different people. She plays five different yeah. people at that dinner. She's just like, at one point she's like, innocently interested in his work. Then yes. she's like, I don't want to, you have to feel like you bring your work home with you. Then it's like this very sexually charged dialogue, but then it's like very proper and being like, I'm not like that. Then there's like, when, when he asks her about how is California. This is a great point. I'm trying to figure this out. When he, he asks her about California, she says, it's all steers and queers, man. Which is usually something people say about Oklahoma and Texas. Yeah, like, who says like, that about California? That's in, it's a line in Full Metal Jacket. It's right. a line in an officer and a gentleman. It's like, traditionally something you would say about more like cow towns, but Amelia was in San Francisco, which I yeah. guess was a cow town in like the 19th century or whatever, but... Yeah, who says that about California? No one. Yeah. Very interesting. Another thing to note, which we alluded to earlier, in that dinner scene, and this will become a, a, a pattern in her life, every time Wayne gets close to asking her something uncomfortable, putting his finger on a nerve, maybe getting her to admit something about her life, she escapes from that, and she usually does it by being aggressively sexual in her in mm -hmm. her actions. She, it's the same way she did in their fight in right. She's like, "Let's just do it. Yeah. Let, then let's just fuck right now." Right. In that dinner scene, he's like, "So you know, why don't you tell me about yourself? Like, what's going on?" She's like, "What are you making a list?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah I'm compiling a database right now. It's it's active as we're going on." And she says, "Oh, what do you want to do with me later?" And just takes it right to that place, and that throws him off yeah. every time he approaches. Getting something out of her, she manages to get out yeah, of it. Yeah, he's that like, way I'm and turn it back on you, him. But she's like, I'm actually, I'm gathering information about you. Every time he's like, oh, I don't, I'm not, I don't have a lot of girlfriends. I haven't had a lot of girlfriends. She's like almost basically like figuring out ways to manipulate him and get the information yeah. she wants in some ways. Who else do we got? Uh, there's, okay, so Sam, Sam Whitehead, the uh, dead eye guy who they locate in Davis Junction after going to the liquor store. They uh, ask the liquor store manager, have you ever seen anybody like that? They put him on Sam. Sam, Adamant that he has no knowledge of missing kids. I buy it. Is never around Devil's Den, does not attend St. Michael's Church. Yeah. He does say one thing that's pretty interesting, which is a lot of people in this area missing fingers, toes, eyes. Farm work. Farm work kill, on, the, on the, the kill line at the chicken plant. Which would be Hoyt Foods, which we talked about last week, which I think we're going to see a lot more of going I mean, forward. We have to. There's only four yeah. episodes left. Yeah. Uh, another great who. Eliza and Henry clearly fucking now. <laughs> Jason Julie's shipping them. I love it. I'm not even shipping. They're doing it. And like, so when Wayne goes to the uh, PD to talk to his son, he asks her about it. Have you seen her lately? Have you talked to her? No, Dad. Not since uh, you know I told her off because uh, she was criticizing the investigation at your house. And Wayne looks at him and is like, Okay, son. Yeah, and then he goes to a hotel room, and it's clearly a hotel two, for two. Yeah. Two wine glasses, takeout yeah. food, the bed is all a mess. petit déjeuner. Yeah. And then, if it's not someone we knows, if it's not his son, why not just say, yeah, my boyfriend was over. Yeah, blah, right. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Obviously, she's hiding something. And then, two really interesting ones. Who's watching Wayne's house yeah. after the hallucination? Who's that car? And then, who is the dead suit guy? So, if we assume that everyone in this room is someone that Wayne killed— Right? That includes Brad Woodard, who I guess Wayne feels responsible for. Fane, Wayne feels responsible for. Who is this guy? Who is he? Right. Look, I, I was like, he looks like a Fed. He does look like a Fed. But we haven't gotten there yet with that. Yeah, so that's, that's our who, and that's a lot of stuff. With where and when, I don't think we have to spend a ton of time on yeah. that this week. I kind of just wanted to mention, not for fun, because there's really nothing fun about it, but 
the appearance of of Bill Clinton. Yeah. Shaking hands with Roland West in a photo hanging in West's office in 1990. Look, man, obviously he's a conspiracy magnet. Yes. Um, there's a lot flying around about Clinton and his days as Arkansas governor. Yes. He he would have been uh, still governor in 1990, correct? Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not going to get into the conspiracy theory so much as I will say that if nothing in this show is an accident, there's no accident that Bill Clinton is on that yeah. wall. And that you can take it for two ways. One, you're entering into the vortex of Google Bill Clinton conspiracies. Or, West has really realized how to navigate the political landscape of the state government. Yes. And he, he knows how to push the He buttons. knows whose hands to shake. You can see that when he's like, the guy's like, you know, he's put his reputation on the line for you. He's just kind of sitting there taking the L. So he really, like, I think understands how to navigate the politics of this. And it'll be interesting to see how that governs the way he pursues the case yeah. going forward. There's some other stuff that we wanted to address, though, with where and when, too. Another thing to think about is the census in Arkansas put the percentage of the population of the state, of black population, at 16% of the state. So about 2 million white residents of Arkansas and just under 400,000 black residents. So To give you a sense of the dynamics. To, get, to, get you a sen- to give you a sense of like what's at play here. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, redlining in Arkansas, which is uh, an issue across the country, but specific to Arkansas. When Patty Favor is like, oh, uh, I figured the, the guy with the dead eye lived in Davis Junction with the rest of them. That's something that is very real in Arkansas. Post uh, Brown versus Board of Education, President Eisenhower had to call in the 101st Airborne the Screaming Eagles, in order to force uh, the state to desegregate their schools. And then since that time, like in many places around the country, as open displays of uh, racism became less accessible, efforts to keep the black and white population separate became less overt but no less robust. Refusal of mortgages for homes, certain areas, real estate agents who would steer prospective home buyers to white areas. Uh, In 1984... B. Finley Vinson, who was the head of the Little Rock Housing Authority in the 50s, later became the chairman of their biggest bank, testified that the LRHA systematically located public housing and would create public housing in order to to steer blacks away from white neighborhoods. And said in a New York Times article from 1984, real estate companies, banks, mortgage companies had selectively withheld mortgages or home insurances to maintain segregating housing patterns. Patterns. So this is part of... This is the Arkansas we were seeing. This is the Arkansas we're seeing. So when people start bringing up, people in, the, in our show start bringing up, oh, a black man with the, with the, uh, the dead eye, at talking about him operating in white areas. Everybody noticed the car because it was too nice for the area. And yet nobody can seem to locate this guy. It just seems very strange. And this is part of a pattern that across America of uh, people using fictional black suspects mm-hmm. as a way to kind of like put suspicion off themselves. I, the Charles Stewart case from 1990 in Boston was a huge oh, thing. Yeah. Uh, Stewart killed his wife, shot himself, uh, his wife was pregnant, and then he claimed that a, a, a black man with a gravelly voice carjacked them and did this crime. The police went all out trying to search for this guy for months, and they actually picked up a suspect who Stewart then picked out of a lineup and were absolutely going to railroad this guy until Stewart's brother came forward and was like, he did it, I was part of the case. Uh, Susan Smith is another very famous one. Uh, Smith reported that uh, an African-American carjacker stole her car with her kids inside of it, and then it turned out that, in fact, 
she had rolled her car with her children into a lake. So this is this is something that happens in the 80s and 90s. We see it over and over again. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's also one last thing I would mention about the where and when. And it kind of comes into the real life crimes that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Is just the appearance, albeit on TV, of Phil Donahue and using mass media, yeah. using daytime talk shows, using tabloids to shape the narrative around these cases, whether it's to stoke fear, whether it's to direct attention towards a certain suspect. That's something that was a huge deal in the 80s. These daytime talk shows had a lot of innings to eat, and they would yeah. fill it with some pretty wild crap sometimes. Pre-internet, so this is how you got. This is how you figured out what was going on in culture. Right, and it's interesting that uh, Wayne is so aghast at this. Yeah, he has like a very specific way that he wants to pursue this case, both in '80 and in '90. Yeah, and in '90, you can tell he's trying to hold himself back because something happened in '80 that made him go yes. against the grain. Let's just say, so we don't know yet what that is. So that's what we got in episode four. Let's talk a little bit about where we're at at this point in the season oh, man, and maybe at? some theories we have about what's going on. The one thing I wanted to mention to you, man, is just that like in past, if we're looking, looking at season one as kind of like, like a closer comparison point than season mm-hmm. two, we can just kind of put to the side for now. Uh, although I love all the season two connections theories because they're so out there. There's some really <laughs> good ones. Um, the biggest one that I was thinking about was just the fact that in season one, Rust is quite clearly a like right. kind of genius. Right, right. You know, he's, he's got a savant. this notebook and yeah. he's he's connecting all these dots and he's doing drawings and he's yeah. just understanding it. These are two guys who are kind of banging their head against the wall. Right. They're not dumb. But this show is way more about what we don't know than it is about confirming what a yes. genius does know. There's no Sherlock Holmes here. Wayne is the best detective in the department. Um, probably not on the level of Rust, but at the same time, he can... It doesn't matter how good he is because in order to navigate the internal politics of the police department, the local government, and the town itself, he has to work through Roland. Yeah. Uh, like they had that conversation in the car. Why didn't you back me up? You know they're not going to listen to me. It doesn't matter how good Wayne is. Yeah. He can't fight against the currents that are fighting against him, the obstacles in his way. It's just impossible. And it's, it shapes his character, too. Yeah. You hear Amelia say to him in the, their argument in the kitchen where she's just like, oh, things just keep yeah. happening to you. Poor you, fate just keeps happening to you. Yeah. Your feelings keep happening to you. And obviously that feeling of being constantly like kind of piled on by the world yeah. is hitting him. In that last scene with him in 2015 where we see him being invaded by ghosts. Like he can keep the ghosts at bay for so long he's having a good day. But then like at the end of the day, each one of these timelines comes with it. This incredible sense of like personal guilt yeah. and responsibility that's just overwhelming for him. The other theories, I mean like there's there's a bunch of stuff floating around right now. Obviously like people are looking for the brown sedan in frames of, of True Detective this season and they are, they are finding it in different places. But like Jason was saying, like we're not even sure that this brown sedan thing isn't a cover-up for some sort right. of larger conspiracy going right. on. And that, I, I just, I keep coming back to Hoyt. I just feel like Hoyt's going to have to show up again. I mean, there's just not a, there's not a, considering how much runway we have left, they have to dive into the Hoyt conspiracy soon. I mean, like, if I want to, if you want to go crackpot, this is something we've talked about. Let's uh, go crackpot. My absolute crackpot theory is that uh, is that uh, Lucy, maybe for extra money or for whatever reason, introduced her kids to the pedophile ring run by Hoyt or whatever Hoyt is doing. Um, and that is why she is so guilty. And that Dan is some kind of red herring that maybe was trying to rescue Julie from this. Yeah. I mean, like, it's... Lucy's level of guilt 
seems commensurate with someone who feels like she did something she to did start something. a chain of events. Yeah. I don't know if she like literally signed her kid up to, for that. That would be insane. Maybe she didn't know exactly what but it was. But she seems so yeah. sketched out yeah. by Wayne searching Julie's room uh, in episode two, yes. I believe. She seems like you know, she wants to confess something, but then immediately gets her guard up about it. Mm-hmm. We don't know who was calling her on the phone. Like you mentioned, like she's on that call. It sounds like there's a lot of prank calls going on. A lot of yeah. crazy things are being phoned into the police department. Yeah. But, but how would they get her number? Uh, well, I guess phone book. You never know. I mean, I, but I just think that it's yeah. like the charity, the charity organization attached to Hoyt. The specific way that they mentioned that Hoyt's not there. So there's that, and then there's also I think that the biggest thing that we'll have to answer over the course of the rest of the season is what the hell is going on with Amelia and what role does she have in all this? Here, so here's my crackpot Amelia theory. Just, she said she left California because bad things happened. Right. Something that happened through the late '60s and the '70s was like the the most left people, like the weathermen, the weather underground, just went super left. Uh, were on the FBI most wanted list, started to rob banks in order to uh, fund their activities, which included occasionally planting bombs in usually empty places. This culminated in the 1981 Brinks robbery, which was uh, executed by members of the Weather Underground and, and the Black Liberation Organization, which was like people in 81 were like, these people are still around. That resulted in the deaths of, I think, two guards. What if, here's my theory, Amelia took part in some sort of like leftist bank robbery, crime, something. She's on the run. Had to flee. Maybe her name's not even Amelia. Maybe her name's not even Amelia. Yeah. Who is she? Yeah. She never talks about herself. Yeah, I mean, that was something that really hit the post-hippie generation. Yeah. It was basically the introduction of really hard drugs, the changeover from psychedelics to opiates yeah. in, a, in a lot of cases. Really, it went dark. It yeah, went all It went real dark. It went... Now we're paying to feed our habit rather than to feed our idealism. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that there's another shoe to drop with her. There's so much stuff that Wayne says towards the end of it. He's like, I feel like I made you sick. Is yes. he talking about Becca? Is he talking about Amelia? Well, what happened to Becca? Becca's and, another. And, and where is Becca? Because yeah. he seems, Becca has now been mentioned twice as basically someone who sounds dead, even yeah. though Henry says, She's Basically, in LA being a singer. She's in LA being a singer, and they're and they're estranged ever yeah. since the mother passed away. Okay, that feels like as good a place to stop as any. We will be lot. back with you next week, episode five. Woo! We're rounding into the back nine here, so yeah. I think we're going to start getting a few more answers, but we'll be there to, to sort them out. Chicken people, where are you? All right, wait, show up. Jason Concepcion, I'm Chris Ryan. Thanks for watching the Flat Circle. Come back off safari. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs>